Well, hi, folks, and welcome back to the Fine Wine Confidential Podcast. This is your host, Fred Reno. The segment you're about to hear is the epilogue to my Dennis Horton montage, episode number 44. When I launched this podcast in November of 2020, the goal had always been to create an oral history that I would donate to the University of Virginia as a permanent record for future wine lovers and budding wine producers so they would have an inside look at how the early days of the modern Virginia wine industry developed in the words of most of the essential pioneers, beginning in 1976 with the establishment of Barbersville Vineyards and the arrival of Gabrielle Rossi to the Old Dominion. Unfortunately, I never had the opportunity to meet Dennis Horton, one of those pioneers, before he passed away. So I felt it only fitting to end my journey with a montage on him and his contribution. In this episode, I was fortunate to sit and interview Sharon Horton, Dennis's wife and partner, along with their daughter Shannon Horton and her daughter Caitlin Horton, the winemaker at Horton Cellars today. I wanted to give the three generations the last word on their husband, father, and grandfather, and I wasn't disappointed in their interaction and the answers to my questions. Take a listen. All right, folks, we're here at Horton Vineyard. I'm here with Sharon Horton, her daughter Shannon, and her daughter Caitlin, and I can't thank you ladies enough for coming in here and giving me some material that I can splice on to the last episode. So, Welcome. So let me start with you, Sharon. This is a very simple question, but I'm intrigued. What was that day like when you and Dennis decided, okay, we're going to buy this piece of property, we're actually going to plant a larger vineyard, and we're going to get into wine growing and making wine. What was that day like? I think that wasn't a joint effort. I think that was Dennis's idea. Totally. Okay. But then you decide, okay, I'll be the vineyard. No, I think he. Uh, we had to decide that whenever the first vineyard manager didn't do the right kind of job. And he sent me over there to find out what was going on. And we found out that the posts weren't in the right place, the irrigation was all wrong, and the plants were coming in two weeks. Oh, okay. And he so. already set up uh, 25 acres. I got almighty for so, servitude. Yeah, so I found the job. All right. <laughs> well, and you're still doing it today. Yes, I am. You're yes, in the and I, I enjoy it very much. So, and uh, there was only one criteria I told him: we're not moving to California and planting a vineyard out there. And the second thing was we're not having a winery in front of our house. <laughs> Two good decisions. Two. Yes, I thought so. <laughs> I even made him sign a piece of paper <laughs> for that. Effect. That's perfect. Yes. So, Shannon, were you born when this was happening? What was going on in your life? Do you even remember or recall? Yes. I was already, what was it? 1989. I was born in 1972, so I was like over 10 years old. So I was like, what, 17, 18? You were a junior in high school because you graduated in 1990. See, yeah, my kid knows. I don't. Um, she does the math a lot better. I'm, I, I need a little pen and paper. So I remember it growing from the basement. I remember doing it a lot when I was a kid and even younger. And then I was like, oh, so now we have our own grapes. We didn't have to go somewhere else and pick them <laughs> to make our wine. <laughs> oh, so you basically 
made that decision you were going to get into the business and not do something else? No. Dad always made it very clear that this was his hobby, and he was playing with it, and um, I should always go make my own way. And so I became a nurse, did that for quite a while, and then this, I just kind of slowly came back into the business, but was always interested in it and always appreciated wine. And then the same question to you, Caitlin, uh-huh. how did you get involved in the enterprise? Sure. So uh, I was born into this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I grew up, my mom was in school, she did nursing and then went to law school. I spent the summers with my grandmother and school holidays, so I spent my summers out in the field. That's where I spent my school holidays and um, when we lived in... Um, Virginia, I would like, um, she'd pick me up after school and I'd go to the vineyard and do my homework and then go out with the guys because I thought that was cool. (laughs) Um, little did I know it was work, but (laughs) so I did that. And then in high school, I went to boarding school and then um, I was like, nope, I don't, I don't be any part of this vineyard. I don't want to own my business. I don't, I, I want to go home and not think about work. So I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Okay. And I graduated in May of 2020. I started working full-time here in 2016 and going to school at the same time. And then I was like, well, I'm not going to leave them in the middle of the pandemic. I'm going to help. And then as soon as they can replace me, I'll leave and go use my criminal justice degree. And now I'm the winemaker. So there's that. Okay. There you go. Well, let me jump backwards a little bit, but I'm curious, Sharon. So when this 93 vintage Viognier hit the marketplace and had this incredible response and uproar and put Virginia on the map, really. What was that like? It was very, very rewarding, especially for Dennis, because he had picked that variety for Virginia. No one had heard of it. No one thought he could market it. And so when it went over like gangbusters, even in California, he was really, really happy. Yeah, in fact, Bruce Sockland said to me in my interview with him that he thought it was the first and only Virginia wine ever on the wine list at the French Laundry in Napa, Yeah, which was yeah. kind of remarkable when you think about it. Yes. Was that his favorite grape, or did he have a favorite grape? Viognier and Norton were his favorite. Okay. He always said that. Well, you just jumped to my new passion, which is Norton, so <laughs> let me go right there immediately. What was it like? And what prompted him to bring Norton back here? Well, he grew up in Herman, Missouri. So Stonehill was his backyard. Okay. So um, we got our cuttings from there. We met with Jim Held. And I'll never forget that meeting because Dennis was in the front seat with Jim. He was showing us the vineyards and talking. And I was sitting in the back seat. And he turned around to me and he said, If you want to make a small fortune, you start with a big one in the wine business. That's true. That's true. I think everyone in the wine business kind of tries to discourage other people. And they don't listen to the truth either. We got into it anyway. Right. How about that? Yeah. (laughs) Well, there you are. How about that? (laughs) So, Shane, I got a question for you. I'm curious, from your vantage point, if you meet somebody today, let's say, who knew your father and talked about it, what do they tell you? What do they say? What's the recollection that comes out? So usually most of the stories come in the tasting room for me, not more on the vineyard side, but more on the uh, tasting room side. And they just always remember him being in the tasting room, smoking a Sersher Sweet in his tasting room. Oh, yeah. 
during normal hours. This is not after hours. And that they always remembered that he went and opened something different. That when he was here, like, they would mention something and Dad would be like, oh, hold on. And he'd go back and get something out of that wasn't released yet or he'd been holding on to. Or he'd go get old vintages out of the library. They always seem to remember, like, and then they'd be here for hours just talking to him about the wines and the history of Horton and the history of what he had done. And they got to try all these really great things. And then they always seemed like that the rest of whatever was going on just fell away into the background. Like, they didn't remember other people being here, that his charismatic personality when he was talking about the wines and what he had done, everything else fell away. Interesting. Caitlin, do you get any of that yourself when they ask about your grandfather? Yeah, so I, I get it um, from time to time when I worked at the tasting room full-time. Um, there would be people who would be like, so there used to be this guy here, and he would cuss all the time and smoke. And I'm like, oh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, that would be my grandfather. He was a character. And they're like, yeah, and he just told these, like, amazing stories about, you know, the White House and this. I'm like, yep, yep, that would, that, that's my grandfather. Oh, man. <laughs> That's that's priceless, you know. So, Sharon, was Dennis's love for wine, was it French? What drove him to the Rhone Valley to check out Viognier and things of that nature? I think he had researched enough that he knew the Rhone Valley had the same sort of weather that we have here in this region in Virginia. And so he wanted, he had tasted Virginia wines that were on the market at the time before we started. He took two or three years to research everything before he even put the first plant in the ground commercially. He decided that he didn't like Chardonnay (laughs) at all. The Cabernet Sauvignon was not going to be a grape for Virginia, so he wasn't going to imitate California or try to because we had different weather. So he needed something, a white wine that a red wine drinker would appreciate, Mm -hmm. and he came up with Viognier. Mm -hmm. And I think it holds true to the story. Well, that's that's brilliant to really understand that that early on. And we're talking about, I was trying to categorize this this morning in my own mind. What would Dennis Horton's legacy be, should be? And I kept coming back, believe it or not, to Robert Mondavi in California. yeah. I just kept saying... He went there a couple times. Yes, we went to Madavi's Vineyard before we even planted the two of us, and we wanted to see the open liar trellis system. And Madavi had his Opus 1 on open liar. That's where Dad got it from. And that's where we got that idea, and he said, that's the only thing we're going to have because we have too much rain in Virginia. we got to open our canopy and see that fruit. Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting. That's why he had so much Opus 1 in his cellar. I yes. didn't know that. Yes. Huh. <laughs> I'm learning things. Let's go. <laughs> well, that's great. That's fantastic. So, I think, at least from my vantage point, I've only been here in Virginia four and a half years, I don't think there's been enough written or said about Dennis Horton and what his contribution is. And I'm just curious if... I'll ask you, Shannon, what do you think? I mean, is there a reason be, beyond that, which is just people forget people and move on? Or I just don't hear about that often. I bring it up more than anybody else brings it up. 
I think also the Virginia wine industry grew exponentially mm-hmm. after we had been established about 15 years. Yeah. And then at that point, it got exponential. And when you have a growth like that, you don't have the foundation or the research behind it. It's like you're imitating a model, still making great wines and putting things out. But the business model really was already set. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have to, oh, what's that guy doing over there? Or where did this come from? Or why do we have it? Well, there's a high demand for it, so let's plan it. Instead of looking into why was there a high demand for it? This is how this happened. It's still in books. It's still, he's still quite, prevalent in Janice Robinson's book, yeah. the the book of grapes where she did the, what is it? The 15,000 grape d- different varietals. He's still under four or five of those varietals. He is still listed by name of what he did in Virginia for the Vonier, for Pinotage, for Arcatitelli, Cabernet Franc, Tanat. He is still in that book. So that is immortalized, but not a lot of people pick that book up and read it. Yeah. It's a textbook. It's a reference, but it's not something that you, oh, let me put this on my coffee table and just enjoy that this afternoon. Unlike that's what dad did. Yeah. He He, read that book. He read the Oxford companion to wine Mm -hmm. wine, Mm -hmm. and he read it like it was a chapter book. Yeah. Well, you know, you just touched on something that made me think about what I see happening in the wine business that discourages me. There doesn't seem to be enough intellectual curiosity on the part Mm, of the wine lover, let alone the wine industry itself. I can't get enough of it personally. Sure. I learn something new every day about wine. Sure. And yet I don't see that intellectual curiosity out there at all, really, anymore. And I think that's what fuels legacies Mm -hmm. and people remembering and understanding contributions that were given. That's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is to create a, a history that's yes. going to exist. I think it's, it's whether you want to know about the culture. So it's kind of like, um, we just recently went to Pennsylvania. Sure. They have great jams and jellies and pickles and stuff, but it also was a part of their, that culture that came over and settled that area yeah. was pickled things and chow chow and bread and butter pickles. Mm-hmm. And so it's depends on what kind of, consumer you are do you look at the product that you're having and want to understand the culture that built that product and brought it to market today well you know sharon one of the things that's come through in the interviews i did with the other virginia personalities they all tell me the same story about dennis but from such a different vantage point (laughs) but it but it comes down to a couple things that always stuck have has been sticking with me and that is very simply he was very generous. Apparently, yes. he was just open book. Yes, yes, with Mike his knowledge, hundred percent. He'll take you down in your cellar, his cellar, in a heartbeat. Anyone was like, hey. "He'll send you the balance sheet." Yeah, there were people that were starting vineyards, yeah, and wineries, no and he's like, "Look, I'll just send you the balance sheet. And you'll see how much money you're going to have to put in. You'll see the nuts mm-hmm. and bolts of it." And people couldn't understand how that happened. Like, why would a business owner do that? And he yeah. just. If you were going to get into the industry, he wanted to make sure you had the right foundation, mm-hmm. that you knew what you were getting into, because in Virginia, it's not easy. Yeah, and he would take you downstairs, and he'd show, there was no secret formula. If you asked, he would tell you mm-hmm. what he did. Mm-hmm. Like, there wasn't a, a 
Um, like we just went to a oh like chef an intellectual and, property yeah. like I can't tell you all the ingredients because then I wouldn't right. have a job anymore because that's my secret recipe. Dennis no. is like whatever. Here it is. Have fun. Go do it. Do it better than me. I'll watch. Like and it wasn't like an intimidating thing. He really wanted people to succeed in the business, but you need to understand everything you're getting into. Well, yeah, it's one thing to give people the ingredients, and it's another thing for them to execute against it. Correct. Right. <laughs> they also didn't have his palate, though. Well, you know, y'all are born with that. I was not born with that. Y'all, y'all two were just have the right genetics. Uh, I missed out. Um, yeah. So he well, had a really sharp palate. Oh, hundred percent. Oh, yeah. He could tell whether you needed copper in your land. Like, he used to, he would taste wine, and then he'd be like, oh, it needs copper in the field. And they were like, what? And he goes, here, watch. And he'd put a copper penny in it, swish it around, and he goes, now try it. Oh, my God. No, he used to do that trick all the time. Yeah. That's, why we, yeah, that's why we um, switched to synthetic cork so early on. We switched in 1989. Because he could taste it. He could taste that, what is it, T- TCA, T-C-A. yeah, whatever. Oh, He's one wow. of that, yeah, the, like, point zero zero three percent of the population. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he had a perception for it. He could yes, take he it could. up. Yeah. Really quickly. Even though he was a smoker. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll divert and tell you a little story. When I met Andre Chelichev in 1983, he was on a retirement uh, sort of tour that actually Chateau St. Michel did for him. And I was a retailer in D.C., and I got invited because I was a big pro- supporter of Chateau St. Michel for whatever reason. And I muscled my way into dinner to sit next to him. And he chain-smoked the entire dinner. And I was surprised. And I said, Mr. Chelichev, how can you taste wine and smoke cigarettes? And he said, son, that's the only way I can taste wine. I wouldn't know what it tasted like without the cigarette smoke. And I thought, that was really amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was probably what Dennis, too, could yeah. taste. Wow. That's only remarkable. if he was smoking, probably. <laughs> so, Sharon, I'll ask you this question. If Dennis could say, all right, here's what I want my legacy to be when I'm no longer here in Virginia, what would he have said? What would he have liked it to be, do you think? She looks know. at me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's hard to, to say. It okay. really is. Because um, he was a very diverse personality. Um I think he would want credit for what he did. 100%. Yeah. And that's about Because there would be it. times when people would come into the taster and be oh, like, oh, a so lot of you times. have a Norton, or you have a Vaudier? You also yeah. have a he Pinotage? He would come across that bar like yes. you would not I believe. Was, I witnessed a lot of that. And <laughs> I was so sad because he really did, was hurt. Yeah, like, I don't no. think he cared about much else, but no. the credit for he that, or Cabernet Franc and yeah. Tanat, like, they are the staples of the Virginia wine industry, and I think that was something that he would, he didn't care if you copied him, no, no. but mm-hmm. as long as you said, hey, I visited with this weird dude, you know, Dennis, wait, wait, you know, in between cigars, he told me what to do, that was fine with him. Well... I can only say thank you to him for bringing Norton back here because I have become the biggest passionate Norton supporter I think there probably is out there outside of Jenny McLeod, maybe. Yes. But uh, I've 40 years in the wine business, never had a bottle of Norton in my life until I came to Virginia. And then all of a sudden it's like, 
how did this ever escape my radar? The beauty of Norton, and you've been so generous to sell me some older bottles out of the cellar here, and it's just remarkable how good these wines yes. are when they get 10 they or 15 really turn years bottle age. When they're older. Oh, they're amazing when they're older, which not yeah. a lot of people have an opportunity to taste an old Norton. Yeah, because they just go through it so fast. Yeah. <laughs> or like they didn't think to keep it. Like, right. There, there's not, a, like, especially Virginia wine, like, who, who has a bottle of 92 Virginia wine? Besides us. Besides us. Yeah. And maybe Barbersville. Like, Maybe well, Prince he, Michelle, like Ingleside, got some. Ingleside from the, has yeah, some and from okay. the eighties too, because I found them the other day. Okay, in the in the cellar, Dad was drinking there. He was also drinking everybody else's. Yeah. And he drank more yes. of everybody else's than he drank of his own. Yeah, he didn't now, when he got older in life, he was drinking like three or four of his own. Yeah, but. The well, majority he did that in, for research. He wanted yes. to know who was making what. Yeah, and what did it taste like, yes. and what potential did it have? And, yes, and did it have potential, or should it just be scratched from our repertoire? Yeah, he. You he, know he, what I'm saying? Well, he, and I, this is more recent, but I got to tell you, the 2018 Norton from your property, from Horton, has just begun to taste. Yes, what it should really taste. opening up, and of course now you're. You just released 19, so I'm telling people, if you can Hold find on, any 18, go get some and right now. There's the last eight bottles right there. Because it is, just in the last six months, I've noticed a dramatic yeah. change in the quality of this wine and the expression. It's like, oh, and now all of a sudden it's like, I better buy some and get in the cellar here because now we're going to 19. Yeah, and no, and it. Dad always said it could grow in concrete, so... And if you remember, 2018 was infamous, infamously known yeah. as one of the, I mean, they were picking it wearing, like, sheer plastic because of the they amount of rain. Out of the field. It was awful. And the yes. tractor couldn't get in Tractors, there because no, it they stuck had got it. stuck. And they hauled, what did you haul out? 12, 12 tons of what? Norton? In by hand? In 18? Yeah. Oh, it was more than that, wasn't it? Yeah, by hand. Yeah. Lug by lug, because yeah. the tractor could not get in there because the ground was too wet. Well, it's Davidson saw, and you know how slippery that gets. Right. That's like ice. Oh, my and God. <laughs> we had grass, but then the tractor just kept sliding into the vines. I said, that's it, guys. We're hand-carrying all this out, and we're picking every day in raincoats till we're finished. <laughs> so, Caleb, what do you think your grandfather would think today about where the Virginia wine industry has come. I don't think he would understand the amount of wineries in the state. Yeah. Um, it is imploded. Even, like, we just drove to Lancaster, and we just went to a, an a, event in Northern Virginia. We passed 20-some wineries, like, just on the road. It is definitely imploded. He wouldn't recognize us, would no, you No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, cause especially, like... When I was a kid, there was, I don't know, I, I remember most of the wineries that are still around here. But, I mean, Orange County's gotten two in the last three years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's just astronomical, the amount of wineries in the state. Um, and we're, it, I, don't, I don't think he would recognize it in that. And he didn't build this place and i don't think he ever would realize that there would be huge wedding venues or a hangout or a hangout that, that's the mm-hmm. other thing that beyond the event venue part he would not have understood this whole like let me have one glass of wine and hang out for the day with my yeah. friend like that was not that's why there's 10 parking places out there 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not. You know, real. this was the traditional California model where you came in, you tried wine, you left. There might be a couple of picnic tables out there, but there wasn't these huge pavilions and yeah. and you know huge umbrellas and and all of this stay around all day. It, well, yeah, and that's what I always tell people: Are you in the hospitality business or are you in the wine business? That's right. And he was in the wine business. He was in the wine business. This place is a factory. It yeah, it's built like a factory. It's got the wiring of a factory. It has a wire. It, it confuses got its the electric company every time the power goes out. So I'm like, I have a partial brownout, and they're like, What? Yeah. I'm like, Only phase one is down. I just need you to come fix phase one. I have two, and I have three. I just need phase one fixed. And they're like, How I'm, do you know that? I'm sorry. What? I'm like, just, just. I don't have lights. Some places. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that that was, he took that traditional model. I mean, I think now since the pandemic, yeah, because there has been an insurgence of a demand of this hospitality side, this have an experience, just hang out with your friends for it and have a glass of wine for mm-hmm. the day. And you may only visit one place, but that is all you're doing. Yeah. Like there's tasting rooms now that are being opened in California that have never and they've been in business 40 years. Yeah. And they're just opening their tasting room for the first time. You know, so it is definitely a very big change in the industry across the United States. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, it's more of a hangout. It's a it's a destination mm-hmm. versus um, you're coming to, like, a grocery store. Like, you're not going to go hang out at a grocery store. Right. Like, I think Grandpa always saw this as more of a... You come in, you buy your couple cases of wine, and I'll see you in six months. All right. Like this yeah. is where you fill up on wine. This is where this is where you go get your eggs. It's the same concept. Yeah. Versus now, it's like, well, here's five of my friends. We want to split a bottle and have some snacks and hang out. What? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's just not our infrastructure. No. And so you can tell by the way he built the building. Yeah, and the I got way five parking it, spaces, ten maybe. Yeah, and there and there's no, there was no look to that. I don't, I don't no. think that. I think that was a change that he possibly did not foresee. Yes, um, and like I have an upstairs, and there is not one pretty view. There's not one. There's not a window. Uh, there's a window, but there's like a beam in the fr- middle of it. Like I, it's, I, it was meant for meetings. It was yeah. meant for like wine meetings, board meetings. Sure. It wasn't meant. We had the VBA up there. You yeah, pesticide meetings. Like it was a meeting room, and that's what the electrical box says. It says meeting room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it really like yes, it, it does. Yeah. It says meeting room. Like yeah. that's really what it was meant for. It wasn't meant for. No. Like, let's have a big rehearsal dinner. Not yeah. not even just event venue, but the whole, like, I'm just going to go hang out with my friends. We're going to meet up And in here. pretty places. Like, yes. I, parts of me are pretty, like, parts, but it's not... It's not like a the the hotel kind of field. hotel lobby. That's my husband, who's yes. not in the wine industry. No. wasn't born in the wine industry. No. Didn't come into the wine industry when we started going around to a couple of vineyards, um, four or five years ago, and going other places because we were going to change up how we offer things sure. for customers. Well, you and have things. to go see what everyone else is offering, right? Because that's like, what customers expect from us. Most of these wineries have that hotel lobby in a good way, but it's. It's that kind of like there's couches and yeah. there's coffee no, tables yeah. and there's this sitting area and then mm-hmm. that sitting area over there. And it was definitely a big difference. It's a change. Well, yeah. ladies, this is fascinating, but let me end it with one <laughs> thought here. And I'll start with you, Shannon, and give the other two ladies here a chance to think about this. All right. One word. Just if you had... One word to describe your father, what was it? Tenacious. 
Kalen, your grandfather, if he had one word, what would it be? Take your time. My grandfather. She's got more than one word, folks. Well, no, I just, there was, he, he's a lot of things. And the grandfather I knew. Yes. Wasn't always this big mogul. Like, I never saw him as that. I didn't really understand who he was until I was older. Like, when I was a kid, I yelled at him once because he, I got a participation trophy when I was, like, six. And he's like, what are you going to do? You just have a participation trophy? And I'm like, mm, what you get in San Francisco Chronicle? A bronze? <laughs> it's not first place now, is it? Like, that was... He, no, yeah, and you said, well, it, that's your participation trophy. Like, I mean, <laughs> she was four years old that's and good. she let him have it. That's good. <laughs> like, All right, we're going to give you the last word, Sharon. Generous. Yeah, most definitely. I found that interaction you just listened to between the three generations of the women of the Horton family to be very fascinating. It only made me that much more disappointed that I never met Dennis Horton himself. However, his legacy will live on and his family had the last word as I close this chapter on my journey to chronicle the folks and challenges that built today's Virginia wine growing community along with the wines produced in the Old Dominion. It's now been over two and a half years since I went live with this podcast. As I have mentioned before, I will be working with the folks of the Camp Library at Darden Business School on the campus of the University of Virginia to archive these audio recordings so that they will be available for future research by interested Virginia wine growers and the public at large. However, this is a melancholy moment for me because I've yet to decide which direction my podcast will pursue. However, it will always focus on wine in the industry I love. So stay tuned, and I will update everyone once I have a clear direction that the Fine Wine Confidential podcast will tack towards. I cannot thank all of you enough for taking this journey with me through the history of Virginia wine. And as always, please send me any comments or thoughts you have. Perhaps one of you, my listeners, will make a suggestion that ignites an idea and prompts me to go in that direction. Stay tuned and I will see you on the other side. Music at Fine Wine Confidential Podcast by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com from his copyrighted song Acoustic Shuffle under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. I hope you enjoyed the show.